This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. Welcome to Radiotherapy. Happy International Women's Day for last Thursday, I think. Uh, in the wake of International Women's Day, I wanted today to discuss women's mental health. We have a great coup in that I'll be interviewing one of Australia's most prominent researchers into women's mental health, Professor Jayashri Kulkarni, who's based here in Melbourne as the director of the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre. The centre addresses women's mental health through the life cycle, and today I'll be asking her questions about their research and clinical work into the effect of chronic trauma on women's mental and physical health and hormone-related mood problems that affect women, including perimenopausal depression. But first, we're starting off with a few bits of health news, including a recent article on homelessness and mental illness, which appeared in the MJA this week. And then we'll launch into the program for today. After our interview with Professor Kulkarni, Dr Sharma will explore the perverse incentives for GPs to over-investigate their patients, which I think might have been prompted by a frustrating day at the office film. Yeah, just a little bit, not going to lie. That and some media reports, that's all it takes to get me going. Okay, good. We'll have a big argument about that then. And SK is back with a fascinating discussion of the insanity defence in the context of the movie Primal Fear, which scared the pants off everyone in 1996. And he will then discuss a modern-day version of the insanity defence being used in the real world by a woman resisting extradition back to Australia for child sex offences. There's some diverse topics there, SK. Absolutely, yeah. It's not quite the insanity defence that she's running, but it's uh, you know um, too too mentally unwell to travel to oh, be see. extradited. Oh, that'll be very interesting. So, let's start off with Doctor Doctor Catchup. Doctor Doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case loving you. So there's a couple of bits and pieces in the news this week. The first one I wanted to just discuss with you guys was um, the AMA, which recently released a position paper reporting on the dire state of mental health funding and coordination in Australia. They pointed out that while mental health is funded to about 5.25% of the overall health budget, it represents about 12% of the burden of care. Uh, And they also mentioned the difficulties that are being experienced by people with psychological and psychiatric disability accessing the NDIS, resulting in a lot less people being enrolled than we had anticipated. And they talked about the fragmentation of the sector with various different funding bodies being responsible for different aspects of care. What really resonated with me was the apparently common sense comment that funding mental health care and services should be on the basis of need and demand, not a competition between sectors and specific conditions. Conditions. They also mentioned a horrifying statistic um, that people who live with schizophrenia die on average 25 years earlier than other Australians, mostly from heart problems. Well, there's a whole show's worth of material there. Yeah, really true. <laughs> Where do you start? I mean, uh, the comment about uh, funding being hijacked by one particular sector or competition between sectors I think is interesting. Uh, You've seen uh, great inroads into the funding of child and youth mental health in Australia in recent years, largely through the terrific uh, advocacy of people like uh, Pat McGorry. But arguably, that funding has come at the expense of money that could be directed towards uh, other sectors. I I have a professional interest in this because as an old age psychiatrist, I've been following the Oakden inquiry in South Australia quite closely. And uh, amongst the litany of failures, there was a failure to adequately fund the facility and... uh, I have a particular barrow to push here in that aged persons' mental health and in particular the uh, the treatment needs of those who are diagnosed with dementia 
uh, incredibly underfunded compared to the burden of need with uh, over 400,000 individuals in Australia with a diagnosis of dementia. And I suspect it's largely because people uh, with a diagnosis of dementia lack the voice for advocacy and perhaps the community sympathy because of fear and stigma that uh, child and adolescent mental health disorders uh, might garner. Yeah, I think it's a big problem. And, and um, it, it's the pretty illnesses that always get the most popular press. It's always the children's hospital that gets all the money. Um, I think the less attractive, less photogenic aspects um, of the care that's required in our community never gets the kind of attention that that's it probably right. deserves. You've, you've got to have a degree of sex appeal for uh, aged persons' mental health to make the front page, and uh, it's not a very sexy specialty. And there's no great machines that go along with psychiatry either. You can't, open, you can't have the minister posing by the latest and greatest this new multi-million dollar machine to promote your care and the, the hospitals sort of treat mental health as an embarrassing little sideline that they have to fund and often the, such funding as is provided by uh, government to the uh, public hospital networks in Australia is just siphoned off to fund other areas of uh, black hole deficit within those health networks. Mm. I think that just really emphasises that need for that old kind of trope now of you know decreases stigma increases the conversation because yeah you you can't show it in that way that you said that you can't show a minister posing next to the machine of you know, the this schizophrenia solver so to speak and conversation about these things is still so relatively muted that it creates this perception that it's far less common than what it actually is uh, it's a, it's a huge problem. People, mm. even in in the in my general practice, every day we'll talk about it in you know, strange euphemisms, and that's just really so underrepresenting the the prevalence of the problem. To take the devil's advocate position, however, you know you can argue for funding on the basis of uh, known uh, problems in the community, the, the spread of illness and morbidity, if you like. But to do so in, in mental health really op- has the potential to open up a bottomless pit of need. Mm. Uh, you know, at the moment, our public mental health services really only cater to people with severe schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, severe forms of depression or, and uh, personality disorder. If you have any other diagnosis and are trying to get treated, particularly in an inpatient setting in public hospital mental health, you don't have a chance because you're not considered ill enough to, uh, to warrant one of the very few beds that are available. So it's a, it's a broader funding issue, uh, but I do take the point that prevalence surveys show that mental health issues are right up there in terms of uh, you know, the very highest burdens of disease in the community, particularly depression, which I think in com- comes in number two globally in terms of burden of disease. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Can yes. I ask, though, that those deaths from schizophrenia that you mentioned, so there's uh, 25 years less life expectancy due to heart disease primarily yeah yeah um and i think that uh, that doesn't surprise me actually um knowing my patients in the public hospital system as i do uh, a lot of people suffer from various different problems which aggregate with poverty like homelessness and mm. um cigarette smoking cigarette smoking and yeah. substance dependence problems and so they will also have an effect the other thing i think that makes it more difficult for people with schizophrenia to access good general practice based healthcare really is that a lot of them are transient and a lot of them have difficulty in trusting uh, practitioners over a long period of time so they have very fragmented care Mm. Uh, and it's really difficult for them to then have the chronic physical health problems that they might have followed up and treated. Mm. You're going to talk later about perverse uh, incentives in general practice to over-investigate, but is is there not also a perverse disincentive in the way GPs are remunerated uh, in terms of their willingness to take on 
uh, clients with significant mental illness. You can't practice 10-minute medicine, for example, uh, in somebody who's got significant schizophrenia and multiple psychosocial problems. You know, the, the, the longer a consult is in general practice, the less money you get paid for it. Isn't it uh, six-minute medicine nowadays? Yeah, six minutes. That's right. No, well, I mean that's that's forever the challenge. Yeah, the the more the more difficult the problem, the less you can you know, poke a stick at it and take it out. Less procedural a problem, uh, the less of remuneration, and uh, yeah, it just creates the kind of mess we we see now, where things need to get to a crisis point before anyone can do anything about it. Yeah. Mm. But it's so striking, isn't it? So most Australians are making it into their 80th year um, these days and um, people with schizophrenia barely scratching sort of 60, 65. So this is a bit of a silly question for me because I don't know as much about the medications as you guys do when it comes to these things. To what extent are some of the medications for schizophrenia, I understand there were some concerns earlier about them causing what we call metabolic type syndromes and contributing to some of the risk factors that cause heart disease. Do you think it's a major factor? It's probably a very small part of... What's contributing to these things? The group that I see, I tend to see older patients, obviously, and there's much less convincing data about the so-called metabolic syndrome the older you are when you start antipsychotic medications. Mm. Uh, the main thing with metabolic syndrome, as I understand it, is that it tends to precipitate a tendency towards diabetes that wouldn't otherwise be there. And the older you are in age, the more likely you are to already have developed diabetes in accordance with your age. So the, the excess that's precipitated by antipsychotic drugs is, is really very small in older people, but that's quite different for the younger group. Yeah, that's right. So in the people that I mostly treat who are pregnant or in the postpartum, uh, there's a significant issue with obesity and with gestational diabetes in particular. We do think that can be linked to some of the medications that are used to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Mm. Yeah, so it's a big problem. We need to make sure that we don't do any harm when we're trying to treat people and help them with their mental health. There was one other thing I wanted to briefly squeeze in before we go to our interview, uh, and that was um, another thing that's been in the news recently, an article uh, which was published uh, in regard to homelessness. Um, there was a retrospective review of the admission data for the about three different homelessness hostels in inner Sydney, just talking about the kind of rates of mental illness problems of people who are entering those. And I'll give you a couple of um, the stats because I found them really striking, but not sadly very surprising. So um, about 66% of those people had substance use disorders. Um, over half of them had a psychotic illness. Nearly 20% had either an acquired brain injury or an intellectual disability, and most people had at least one and more than one, most of them, for, for a large majority of them. Early life and recent trauma was reported by 42%. 28% of those people had come from prison, 21% from a psychiatric hospital, and 21% because they'd lost their public housing. Um, and so, yeah, what are your thoughts about those set of numbers? Why do you find it surprising? I'm not surprised. I would surprised. have thought it was in intuitively obvious <laughs> no, that I th I those think with a large burden of psychosocial problems struggle to maintain regular housing, employment, etc., etc., and, en and end up homeless. Mm. I think... I think the thing that worries me that is that this seems to be a static problem. So I don't think that those rates have changed at all, really, in the last 10 years. Um, and so although you would hope that we had got better at providing sort of supported long-term care for people with major mental illness, it looks like 
maybe not. Well, perhaps the proportions are not the fairest way of looking at it. I mean, uh, the proportions may well be static, but have we in fact reduced the total burden of homelessness across the population? If we have, and I'm not sure whether we have, then we're on the right track. Mm. But I, I would still expect the proportions of the homeless population to remain fairly consistent over time. Yeah, I suppose that's really true. I, I guess it, it argues to me that we need to have more sort of integrated mental health support in housing and supported housing because uh, from my experience in people coming into the acute inpatient units in the hospital, that's, that's where they come from, a breakdown in their living situation and then suddenly they don't have any access to their medications and things go wrong. I guess many of the inner city hospitals do have homeless teams that do provide outreach. Are you suggesting we actually embed mental health practitioners within these facilities as well? I think off? that might not be a bad idea. I remember going and doing rounds in the homeless um, with the homeless team in inner Melbourne and we would go around very frequently to all the big um, hostels run by the Salvation Army and various other organisations and I felt like it would be great if there was a mental health nurse there. Uh, full-time, really. Lots of places will benefit by the addition of a full-time mental health nurse. <laughs> I think this is also true. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And now I am going to be interviewing Professor um, uh, Jayashri Kulkarni. Now, firstly, I might just introduce this lady. For anyone who's not yet heard of Professor Kulkarni, she is a professor of psychiatry at Monash University and founded and directs the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre, which aims at developing new treatments, new understandings and new service deliveries for people with mental illness. She has championed women's rights throughout her career and has always been an advocate for better awareness of issues that disproportionately affect women and their health. Um, she's the current pre- president of the International Association for Women's Mental Health and founded the Australian Consortium for Women's Mental Health. She's paired this advocacy with a research interest in women's mental health throughout her career, developing specific treatments tailored for women's biological, social and psychological needs. As a result, there are many different streams of research and clinical care relating to women's mental health, which are currently active at the research centre, but I probably only have time to ask her about two. One is the effect of emotional trauma and abuse, including childhood sexual abuse and domestic violence on women's mental and physical health and another is the effect of sex hormones on mood and psychological health including the effect of hormone-based contraception and the syndromes of premenstrual dysphoric disorder and menopausal depression good morning professor good morning thank you for having me on the program oh it's a it's a great pleasure and a great honor my first question to you in the wake of international women's day is why is it important to specifically investigate women's mental health so we often get asked this question, like, why are you banging on about women's mental health when uh, actually, you know, the problem is that men don't seek treatments? Well, in actual fact, we need to consider gender, whether male or female, to be an important part of what makes a person present with certain conditions and symptoms and what are the impacts on them. And when we start to think about that, women have got a whole range of different impacts. And it's not, it's not a minor thing that the social and global environments, um, the political situations, the sense of empowerment or disempowerment, financial situations, all in the social area or environment or world factors all have an impact on women's mental health. So, of course, does the biological or hormone factors, and we'll talk a bit more about that um, on some of the other topics you mentioned, and also psychologically, different sorts of coping mechanisms or styles are gender different. 
So I actually think that we can do better for both sexes and people who identify as neither or, or um, trans because it really is important, the sense of how does somebody perceive themselves gender-wise. Okay. Uh, I, I think you've answered my next question, actually, which was the, asking you a little bit about the differences in the ways that men and women experience mental ill health. Do you have any more thoughts on, on that topic? Yes, for example, um, the levels of depression are, are much higher for women in our community. They're about four times higher. And um, anxiety also is about four times worse for women. Um, certainly eating disorders would be seen as high prevalence for women and, and less so for men. Substance use, uh, interestingly, you would, you would have predicted that men have got the sort of um, monopoly on substance abuse but unfortunately this is an area where equality isn't great but women are catching up in terms of alcohol abuse and other drugs so there are lots of different statistics that I could quote at you but it's really important to note that the numbers of women that present for treatment of psychiatric conditions and the number of women in the general community who are known to have psychiatric issues or emotional issues it's much higher than than men of course there is the issue of do men present but nonetheless the presentations are also different and uh, sometimes women present with um, depression masked as anger and a whole range of other symptoms that, that need to be carefully teased out otherwise they're not going to get the treatment that really is effective I understand a lot of your research, <clears throat> excuse me, actually arises from the clinical experience that you have. You've got a particular clinic um, at the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre called the Women's Mental Health Clinic. Can you tell us a bit about the setup of that clinic? It's a bit different from other mental health clinics, isn't it? Yes, it is. And um, we particularly believe in the biopsychosocial model. And I know that's a sort of catchphrase, but it means what I was just saying before that we think that people really need to be understood in the whole. Um, manner of what's going on in their in their world in the environment for them the psychological aspects and then the biological aspects and that's the underpinning for our clinic so it's a women's mental health clinic and we see women once a week um, for a second opinion but we take a very long history and spend about two hours sometimes with um with our clients and we actually focus on a whole range of different aspects of her functioning including financial health if that's what she wants to talk about uh, definitely focusing on what's going on in relationships for her um, her environment her um, uh, coping styles and then uh, a lot on on the biology in terms of hormone interactions with her mental health and in the clinic we also have an endocrinologist and sometimes um, that particular specialist hormone doctor and I will see people together and um, we also have a number of students and so on. So we're trying to get the model across of a holistic approach and our treatment um, suggestions, because we do a second opinion, so we feed back to the treating teams, that our suggestions are in all of those domains. So it's not uncommon for us to talk about dietary advice or exercise advice along with maybe tweaking an antidepressant that's not quite working or um, thinking about um, natural therapies and so on. So um, obviously psychotherapy for the woman who's experienced 
trauma is a really important part of the work. So this is one of the things that we've found to be very popular when feedback with our clients, that um, the holistic approach is something that really fits for women. But again, it's a woman-centric um, approach. So we do spend a lot of time talking about issues that, that she wants to talk about and make sure that we empower women so that they get a copy of the letter that we send. Um, they are informed about and have a discussion about what might be useful and so on. So empowerment is, is of course, another big part of the clinic. Uh, this actually leads on to my next um, sort of suite of questions with you about uh, the concept of complex trauma disorder. Can you tell us a bit about this idea, which um, probably approximates to some people's experience of the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder as according to the DSM? Okay, so this is where it's going to be hard to stop me talking because I'm mm-hmm. absolutely passionate about this. Complex trauma disorder is what we would prefer people to be calling borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder is a really stupid term in my view. Um, it's got the craziness of, of that that phrase borderline which for people who are suffering from feeling invalid or confused or not clear about whether they've got a condition or not if you say they've got borderline anything it really rubs them up the wrong way and it it adds to the confusing message like do I have something or do I not and if so what is it stop telling me it's borderline that's really silly And then the other part of that term is personality disorder, which I really find objectionable because in our work and in clinical experience and in the world literature, approximately 85% of women who and men who experience or have this diagnosis, borderline personality disorder, 85%, big number, Mm. have got a history of some trauma back in their early lives and even into adult lives. And the trauma can be emotional trauma, it can be physical trauma, it can be sexual abuse. So, you know, that's a a range of of different traumas. But nonetheless, 85% of people with the condition known as borderline personality disorder have trauma. Now, when you say to somebody who's been traumatised and, you know, had a really horrible early life and perhaps um, continuing on that trajectory, um, if you say you've got a personality disorder, I find that really awful because what you're saying is the essence of what makes up that individual, the personality, is disordered. What a terrible statement. It's so stigmatising and it also means that the person experiencing this kind of feels like they've got nowhere to go because the sense of what is them is disordered. So what hope is there? Mm -hmm. So I think it's much better if we reinvigorate the field to think about this condition in terms of what has created the problem in the first place. Well, that's mostly trauma. So if we bring trauma back into the name of this condition, and that's why complex trauma disorder fits, because it's complicated and it's a disorder and it's created by the trauma, then we've got a better reach to try and help the client actually then negotiate different types of treatments and also to get the um, really important concept across that here is somebody who's a victim, who's been really hurt, who's who's really to be 
congratulated for the fact that they're still standing, that they're still getting on with it. And I find that's amazing. The number of women who are in our clinic who have just had most horrible stories and yet they're really, really resilient and they're actually able to hold down a job, to have a family, to get on with it. I mean, what an incredible uh, testimony to the resilience of the human spirit. But instead of that, the condition borderline personality disorder is a highly stigmatised one and the name doesn't help but either does the fact that we don't understand and I, I find it objectionable that it's really been um, a terrible label for people. So our work has been several fold. One is, as you can hear, trying to get the message across that, hey, stop, have a good look at talk with your patient if you've got a patient who's diagnosed with this condition to understand what has happened in her background that has led to the, the condition now. So the condition has got a number of vague symptoms, but the biggest one is where women particularly self-harm. So this is the frequent self-harming with um, slashing wrists or self-burning or um, and then later on perhaps less obviously abusing drugs and alcohol or getting involved in awful relationships and so on. So self-harm is a hallmark of it. But there's also mood swings and so sometimes people have depression for a day and then feel a bit elevated for the next day. Anxiety symptoms are a common, common thing. So there's constant anxiety of feeling hyper alert and um, having a rapid heartbeat, sweatiness and so on, as well as a, a sense of a problem of really knowing who the person is. So they can look in a mirror, not recognize who's looking back and not really have a sense of identity of self. The other weird symptom that's difficult to describe is dissociation. And it's difficult because it's a sense of being out of body, but it, that's the most sort of overt form. But sometimes people feel like they just phase out or daze out or blank out and um, find it hard to concentrate and that can impact on education and work. Memories can be, memory can be poor. And again, in the people who've got early life trauma, that's not surprising that they say, I just can't remember between age six and age nine. And when we go into it carefully, we, we hear horrible, horrible stories of the sort of abuse that this poor person had when she was just a girl. So it's, it's a very diffuse set of symptoms. It's not easy to understand, but the, for, the, for, for either the patient or the clinician or the client, if we want to call people that, but it's just... It's, it's really about trying to get a handle on it. So we are trying to understand the symptoms. We're also trying to understand the brain biology behind all this because that's important that um, we understand more about what happens to brain circuits and brain chemicals when there is uh, ongoing trauma that is so common, unfortunately common, in our society as well. And there are lots of ripple effects of early life trauma right through um, the person's adulthood and, and onwards. So, you know, again, obviously preventing trauma and abuse is critical and we're really thrilled with some of the um, things that have happened in the last few years. The whole um, uh, domestic violence work, the Royal Commission and the, the recommendations, all of those things are great steps in the right direction. Um, but we still have a large number of women who are suffering from the experiences of early life trauma and then, and men as well. But I mean, obviously our clinic is focused on women. So we're working on all sorts of uh, different approaches in that area. One of which is, is um, medication trial, hormone treatment, 
different trauma therapies and so on. So once we start thinking trauma in this group, it opens up a larger range of different treatments. Otherwise, if we keep going down that this is a personality disorder, I think we're just keeping on labelling the patient and making them feel like there's something inherently wrong and that, you know, they should just pull up their socks and get on with it. It's never a good message. No, never a good message. Uh, I, I also uh, think it's important to, to re-emphasise the sort of link that you found between these, these emotional experiences and the physical consequences that sometimes cluster for these this population of people. Can you describe some of the physical illnesses that you see in these women who come to the clinic that you that you run? Yes. Um, obviously, when there's something as horrendous as, 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 you know, take the worst example, which is sexual abuse in a, a child, that has an impact in terms of the brain development. And um, the impacts in the brain are multiple. It, it, it impacts on the person's capacity to concentrate and, and develop new memories and therefore ha- can have struggling times at school. But it also impacts on the hormonal um, status in terms of the original problem when there's chronic trauma is that somebody is obviously in a high level of stress. Just imagine the poor girl who is um, sexually abused by um, a stepfather or some other figure. And um, so she's living life on this high alert sort of situation. And that means that her hormone levels, particularly cortisol, which is a stress hormone, is unusually either high or not responding to the usual ups and downs. So that whole network of, of cortisol and hormone response is upset and once that's upset there's kind of like this cascade of other hormones that that then get altered and we have found that a number of women develop conditions called polycystic ovarian syndrome so this is where it's affecting the gonads and um, women then develop infertility or uh, weight gain um, or hirsutism that's hairiness um, and uh, rage um, and as well as that there can be the other sorts of things that we've noticed which is very pronounced um, depression that occurs on a cyclical basis uh, on a monthly basis and that's premenstrual dysphoric disorder PMDD or also the perimenopausal group who have real sort of rage and exacerbation of all the symptoms once they get to their mid-40s so it's it's not only a mental effect, I and mean, that's bad enough that there are mental effects of something like abuse and early life trauma, but there are physical effects where people can, particularly women, are affected by it in a hormone sense, and they can develop diabetes, um, obesity, uh, all of those hormone shifts that I've mentioned as well. And as well as that, early life trauma and trauma can affect the immune system. We used to think of the immune system just as the thing that stops you from getting coughs and colds and flu and so on. But no, the immune system is also a big system that is involved in such things as medication sensitivities and so on. So a number of the women who experience early life trauma and other traumas uh, have drug sensitivities and so they're the people who when they are given like a a dose of antipsychotic or antidepressant medication will get the worst side effects and of course unfortunately because of this tendency to blame the patient 
she's seen as a troublemaker and, uh, look, you know, I'm trying to get her better and she, she just keeps complaining about all the side effects. Well, actually, they're, tr- they're real and they are related to the immune system being altered as a result of trauma. And, and this is only the tip of the iceberg. You know, we're, we're starting to uncover things. I'm sure there is a global system. I mean, that's the whole point of a holistic approach because one thing that goes wrong will lead to other things that go wrong. Mind you, I'm not saying that, you know, once something like this happens, that's it, you can't fix it, because we know that all of these systems are plastic, and so they can be fixed, and they can, in fact, uh, right themselves also over time if there are lots of other nice positive things going on for the person. But we're looking for new ways to accelerate the recovery and to, again, work in a holistic way to make sure all the body and the mind issues are covered. That sounds fabulous, Professor Kulkani. I had planned to ask you a million more questions about... I'm sorry, I told you it was hard. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's fabulous. Hopefully that means I can ask you to come on again down the track um, to talk to us a little bit more. Thank you about some of the treatments that you're developing specifically for this group of women who are so um, profoundly affected by the experience of trauma they have in their lives. Thank you so much for your contribution today. Thanks very much. Okay. So... um, I, I think that uh, the interesting thing about that clinic, as I said before, and I don't know if either of you had anything to comment about with regard to all of that, is that they do try and address not just the mental health of these women, but also the physical health. And I feel like that's the way forward, hopefully, in the 21st century. Well, that's holistic medicine for you, isn't it? We yep. do so often neglect the uh, the physical in psychiatry. And if you look at the rates of monitoring for things like metabolic syndrome, we, we often let the side down in, in all areas of practice. Okay, we have to race on now. Uh, Dr. Sharma, you have uh, a bit to say about the issues relating to over-investigation in general practice. Tell me, what are your thoughts? Oh, man, you really built this up like I'm going to do a massive rant. Uh, <laughs> and I will. No, 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 I won't. Rant um, away. I have to say, I, I did have a very rant-like impulse uh, when uh, I saw something in the news that really made me think about these issues. Long story short, I saw a, a, like a 60-second promo for a story that was being done um, on TV on sepsis. It's this medical condition which uh, is a body-wide response to having some kind of infection. It progresses really, really fast. And the story was essentially about a couple of people who lost their lives or lost a few limbs, essentially. It was quite tragic, actually. Um, And it was... The way the promo was was actually done was was really instructive for me. And I'm paraphrasing here, but it is almost verbatim. It went something like, you know, the patient developed sepsis, but the doctor missed the symptoms completely. And then the patient's quoted as saying, the doctor doctor diagnosed me with gastro, and by that stage I started vomiting, and they just sent me home to rest. And then the voiceover says, and by the next morning she was gravely ill and admitted to hospital. She could barely walk in the doors. She fell into a coma and woke up four months later to discover her limbs had been amputated. That is a pretty horrifying it story. It is actual horror. I mean, mm. firstly, on just a human level, you you know, you kind of go, go, oh, my goodness, like if that could have been me, there's that. And then there's the second big gulp that I think every GP who listened to that promo heard going, oh, my God. That could be my patient. That could be my patient. That was exactly right. And so it was this incredibly kind of tragic case. And But I, I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I'm not going to be discussing the cases in detail. I think it's, it's unfair. We don't have access to all the information. Also, by no means criticising any of the people who were on that store in any way. In fact, I actually found the patient's perspectives on these things incredibly insightful that I personally learned a lot from. But what was really interesting, I thought, was um, some of the commentary I think I saw on social media, uh, from even talking to to friends, and even just the the general tone of the story itself, which was not 
necessarily this kind of rageful, angry, hysterical views, but actually almost a, a blasé view of, well, this would have these things happened because either the doctor did not have the requisite knowledge or they weren't careful. I mean, the, the most extreme words I think we use being we use were being things like being doctors being incompetent and not caring but even then like there, there was a kind of kind of calm undertone to this of well if they just been more attentive or had known a bit more we could have solved these problems and diagnosed this rapidly evolving condition faster and i think this perception is part of a, a big problem not just for doctors but i think it harms patients in ways that patients don't necessarily realize um, when it comes to really dangerous lethal or fast evolving conditions i think we all agree uh, on a few things. So the medical college is now a system of training and what in terms of what the public want, everyone agrees we want the right diagnosis made accurately and fast. But then at medical school, we're all taught this extra little bit, which is we should make these diagnoses quickly and accurately, but also limit over-testing and over-investigating patients and over-referring them to the emergency departments lest we uh, increase healthcare costs when there could be wasters and they could be going somewhere more sensible or there can be less side effects because of therapies. One of the things that we were all taught in medical school, I'm sure, was the, the phrase, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. And that's what occurs to me when I hear this story. Uh, a GP, I'd imagine, would see half a dozen presentations with gastro per day. Yeah. Uh, number seven gastro comes in, you're much more likely to think this is a common presentation of a common illness rather than a rare presentation of an uncommon illness. And that's so well said, actually, because this is part of the inbuilt bias that a GP's brain is going to have. That's just the way the brain behaves your your future predictions are going to be based on your past uh past experiences and there's just no way to kind of escape that biology um but even on a kind of broader level i I think as gps and as patients who come to see doctors you know we all want the the case of mr lucky you know the, the person who has a symptom like a like a back pain and the doctor somehow knows that this is the one that i'm going to order a ct scan for that's the cancer we find that's the one we treat and everyone wants to be mr or mrs lucky or wants to treat that patient but you know, there's, there's a bit of collateral damage that occurs too and i i kind of give the the collateral damage here a few names if you'll just humor me for a second i also like to think of apart from mr lucky you're going to get mr overdiagnosed some kind of tumorous growth that's actually not a cancer that we end up you know, kind of taking out that wouldn't have caused any harm anyway. You'll get Mr. or Mrs. Limbo, and this is a classic one in, uh, in general practice. The radiology report for the CT scan will come back will say, uh, let's rescan the patient in six to 12 months' time. And so just inevitably, your GP is going to order a CT scan at six and then 12 months. And for that year, your patient is wondering if they are going to live or they're going to die and when this is going to happen. And then, of course, probably the most painful of all the cases is you know, patient Mr. or Mrs. Irony, the one in 2,000 people who we'll do a CT scan on who get cancer because we did the CT scan. Yeah, and I think there's pressure on you from the other direction, isn't there, Vion? Because there's a lot of literature now about over-investigation, particularly, for example, of back pain. Mm. You know, the number of x-rays and other in, in t- investigations that are performed that actually have their own risks associated Correct. with them. Absolutely, and so back pain is a really good example. So there's been a big push to reduce the number of CT scans that are done for back pain, and I think a lot of the similar arguments uh, go for for testing of prostate cancers. And on the whole, I think there's just general mass agreement amongst most doctors that this is just kind of the right thing to do. 
Uh, and I think that's where you really start to see the, what the nature of the problem is. The really is a broad agreement amongst medical institutions and even GPs that the right thing to do is to have this kind of judicious judicious use of investigations where to chase that one zebra, that one really rare tumour that you might catch, you don't order thousands and thousands of more kind of investigations. But what we find is that in in kind of in real life and in real practice out there, that's not quite how the incentives are aligned for doctors. Because inevitably, if you are the type of doctor who is going to investigate things to the absolute hilt in order to, to find the rare diagnoses, um, you will not miss you know, uh, the, the rare cancers. So that's, that's a huge plus for you and the patient. It's a big reputational up for you, mm-hmm. uh, I suppose. But also, you, you're never really going to get the blame for the cancer you might have caused or you might, you're not going to get the blame for necessarily for... Uh, the, the, for Mr. Limbo patients who don't know whether they've got the cancer or not because this is just a, a value we have as humans about you know, more information, particularly in this age, that more information is necessarily a, a better thing. Mm-hmm. And what you get is if, if you are, have been abiding by the general wisdom of medical institutions in order to you know, order tests judiciously, judiciously, you might be saving tax dollars that can be redirected somewhere else uh, but you're never really going to get thanked for that. In fact, what you possibly will get is for that one zebra, that one rare diagnosis you, you miss, mm-hmm. you are going to kind of get pilloried. And it's one of those funny things where no one's necessarily being evil or malevolent here. It's just the way that incentives are aligned for GPs that on a broader statistical public health level, it's it's better and safer for you to do the the slightly more wasteful thing in order to prevent that one very graphic case. Yeah, it's a much bigger conversation, isn't it, about what the values we hold as a society and the kind of pressures that you're under, um, really, to provide excellent care to the individual or relatively good care to the entire population. And the individual who comes up to your surgery is uh, much less interested in the abstract issues of healthcare costs than uh, than GPs might be. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, uh, and I don't even know if there is an objectively right or wrong answer to it, but I, I think that entire the issue we're discussing is something that really people should kind of know about that this exists and these are all the things that are percolating into your doctor's brain when they're making these kind of decisions Mm -hmm. um so you don't get this complete asymmetry of uh of views when you see these horrific things happening which is it's not just about your doctor not knowing what's happening or not caring there are other parts to these equations that we're trying to reconcile and it's actually not very very easy and, uh, you know, I, I wonder if there was a bit more, I don't know if transparency is the right word, but awareness about it maybe, that uh, that perhaps patients themselves would not want to be investigated uh, for diseases you know, or sent to emergency departments as much as, yeah. as we might think we like to. Quite so exhaustively. Yeah. Good point for further discussion. Hello, SK. Hello, thanks for having me. Due to the time available, I uh, decided to truncate the discussion around the film of Primal Fear on this occasion, but uh, narrow it down a bit to something I was going to segue into anyway, which is the case that's current in the media about uh, Malka Leifer, the former Melbourne High School principal who's facing uh, numerous charges in excess of 70 of childhood sexual abuse, including rape uh, back in Melbourne but uh, who left the country prior to charges being laid and is currently fighting uh, extradition uh, proceedings in Israel on the grounds that she is too unwell to travel. 
So it's not exactly a mental illness defence, but it's sort of the George Pell defence. You know, I can't travel back to Melbourne because I'm too unwell. And uh, through hearing the way that this case has been reported in the media, it, it did sort of raise questions to me about how validly the general public might view psychiatric diagnoses. You know, you're facing charges, suddenly you have a label of a mental illness which is pronounced to be too severe that you uh, can't travel back to your home country to, to face the charges. So I, I can't imagine that psychiatry is being painted in a, in a good light the way this uh, case is being presented to the media. But equally, I wanted to take, take a look at just how valid uh, the, uh, the defence of being too anxious to travel might be. It's, it seems quite a strange line for her to have taken. I'm disabled by panic attacks to the extent that I can't get on a plane to travel back to Australia. The points that occurred to me are firstly that uh, she didn't seem too anxious to, to be able to get on a plane and travel over to Israel in the first place. That's, that's, uh, that's one issue. But secondly, how, how unreasonable is it for somebody who's facing serious charges to uh, develop anxiety and panic as a response to those charges? To me, it seems like an understandable human response to an abnormal, stressful situation. And, you know, it's got to be stressful regardless of the veracity of these charges or not. You know, you're facing a number of charges back in a foreign country and you're facing potentially a lengthy period of imprisonment. Anybody would be anxious to do that, I would have thought. So the issue is is not whether she's too anxious to face trial, but whether she's too anxious to step on a plane. And when we were taught... Uh, one of the things that we were told to, to reassure our anxious patients is that no one, quote, has ever died from a panic attack. And, uh, in, in fact, it's probably false. You know, there probably have been cardiac cases precipitated by anxiety. But the general truism is that anxiety is not something that is going to kill you, at least acutely. Am I right? I mean, I've always said that, but let's ask the proper doctor in the room. Really? You got to put it on me, guys? <laughs> no, it's it's totally sensible, really. It's, you know, it's that old quote of yeah there's nothing to fear but fear itself um and it's it's really only that that's going to precipitate the uh the the cardiac events or anything like that and you certainly got to yeah in, in my book there's not a, a a big enough dose of anxiolytic that won't make somebody less anxious enough to travel uh Mm. at some point. Yeah. Brings me into a story I just want to tell quickly about the one time I was called upon to render medical assistance on a plane. I was, was travelling back from Dubai, I think it was, and was lucky enough to be travelling business class and the, the call came over the, uh, the loudspeaker, is there a doctor on board? And of course, like most other doctors, I sat on my hands because as a <laughs> geriatric psychiatrist, I figure, you know, unless this is an emergency <laughs> specifically related to dementia, I'm probably not going to be too qualified to answer. Nobody else put their hand up, unfortunately. And partly motivated by altruism and partly motivated by these stories you hear about wondrous rewards in terms of frequent flyer points <laughs> being given, I did reluctantly put my hand up and was escorted down the back of the plane to, to be confronted, as, uh, as, as luck would have it, uh, by a woman with a panic attack. And I, I did a mental high five and thought, yes, this is something I could actually do. <laughs> And as far as the, the rewards for my, uh, for my altruism went, uh, I did actually receive a form letter from Qatar Airways a few weeks later thanking me for my uh, exemplary humanitarian action. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it was clearly a form letter. And uh, when I was escorted back to my seat, I was presented with, uh, you know, not one but three of those little bars of chocolate that they give you when you take your seat in, uh, in business class. So Jeez. that made the experience entirely worthwhile. Not quite as good as a friend of mine who did respond to a, a serious cardiac 
event on a Jetstar flight, uh, put his hand up and, and in conjunction with a cardiologist, stabilised the guy and uh, enabled the plane to continue its flight. On return to his seat, the, uh, the hostess offered him a, a cup of tea and, and said in his ear, we won't charge you for this one. <laughs> what was the airline again? <laughs> oh man! Oh jeez! That is an awesome story to round out radiotherapy for this hour. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, have a lovely day. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events, and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au. 